This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. It's now over two years since the UK went into its first lockdown, immediately before the March quarter day 2020. Those of us involved with landlord and tenant matters remember those early days well, despite the sleep deprivation, as we looked to help our clients face some very new challenges. Although we'll have to wait to see how the return of some missing landlord's remedies works out in practice, we also have the commercial rent coronavirus bill anticipated to become law on or around 25th of March 2022. Now, today on this Property Patter podcast, I'm recording whilst the bill goes through its final stages in the expectation that not much of the detail will now be changed. Um, so thank you very much indeed to um, Natalie Duker and Hope Wilson, who are joining me today uh, to talk about the bill and who've been going through the detail and the changes uh, as they've been made. But as I say, I think we're pretty much there with this bill. And let's start with the basics. Nat, what's the aim of this bill? The bill establishes an arbitration scheme in order to resolve certain unpaid rent debts which have arisen in consequence of the pandemic. Under the bill, either a landlord or a tenant will be able to make a reference to arbitration, which will be to an arbitration body approved by the Secretary of State, um, although there's no list as yet. The parties can agree between them to appoint a number of arbitrators. So in certain cases, there could be a panel of arbitrators, but in the absence of an agreement, the intention would be for there to be a sole arbitrator. The aim of the arbitration is to determine, in the absence of an agreement between the parties, whether a tenant should be granted relief from payment of certain debts. The process has been designed with the aim of helping landlords and tenants who have not been able to reach an agreement to resolve disputes on unpaid rent debt and then to be able to continue moving forwards under the lease. The arbitrators will be able to award particular forms of relief from payment. That relief can take many forms, including that the debt can be written off in whole or in part, that the debt should be paid by instalments, or that the debt and any interest on it be reduced. Okay, well, that's great. I think that gives us a flavour. And having had the joy of reading through the bill, I know for sure that we cannot cover all of its intricate rules today, but um, perhaps hope you wouldn't mind outlining some of the key points for our listeners. So the legislation is intended to cover all business tenancies, even if they have been excluded from the protection of the 1954 Act. And listeners will be familiar with the assessment to be carried out for ascertaining whether the tenancy is adversely affected by the coronavirus pandemic. And the main point is whether the business or any part of the premises were subject to closure requirements for the relevant period. Thanks, Hope. And it can be quite tricky actually trying to work out these various closure periods, protected periods. Um, And uh, for anyone listening who'd like a bit of help with that, um, uh, my colleague Sam Lear has actually created a searchable document um, with descriptions of the uh, various types of business and uh, and the relevant closure periods. So um, do get in touch if you would like a copy of that. Um, But let's get into a bit more detail about the arbitration process that's envisaged by this bill, because it's certainly got a few key differences from what landlords and tenants might be used to when it comes to, for example, rent reviews. Now, can you give us an overview of the process under this bill and how it's intended to work? Yes, so the the bill effectively divides the process into three stages. There's the first stage, which is the pre-arbitration stage. The second stage, which is an assessment of eligibility, And then the final stage is the assessment of the matter of relief. 
So starting with the first stage, the pre-arbitration stage, um, as currently drafted, either the landlord or the tenant can make a reference to arbitration. That reference needs to be made within six months of the period beginning with the day the Act is passed. Um, we don't know yet whether there will be any regulations that will extend that deadline. It looks as if the Secretary of State will be able to make those, um, but as yet that's unknown. So the parties would be well advised to start preparing now if they intend to make a reference to ensure that it can be made in time and with all the information and documentation required for support. Before making a reference, the party intending to make the reference needs to provide a notification to the other party of their intention to make the reference, and then a prescribed period has to elapse. Um, the party making the reference after providing the notification um, needs to wait for a response. If a response is received within 14 days, a reference can then be made 14 days thereafter. If no response is received in 14 days, a reference can be made 28 days after the notice of intention is served. The reference will need to be accompanied by a formal proposal for resolving the dispute with supporting evidence. Now, the formal proposal um, is really important. Um, these will form the basis of the award, um, assuming that the reference is accepted by the arbitrator. So detailed consideration will need to be given to putting the formal proposals together and what information and documentation is sent in support. Um, just as an aside, um, we don't have a lot of visibility at the moment on fees, but the party making the reference will need to pay the arbitration fees on making the reference. Um, and any award which the arbitrator makes is expected then to make provision for the fees that are paid. Um, and depending on the award being made, this could be either reimbursement of, say, half of the arbitration fee um, and any additional fee for an oral hearing, um, or requiring one party to bear the whole of the fee if appropriate. So there's quite a lot going on in stage one then. <laughs> yes, there's a lot going on in stage one. Um, and then we get to stage two, which is um, uh, which is a critical stage because it is the assessment of eligibility. So at stage two, the arbitrator has the power to make an award dismissing the reference. And they will dismiss the reference if the um, reference doesn't fit within the uh, parameters of um, the requirements. So, um, the assessment will consider whether the tenancy is a business tenancy, whether the rent in dispute is protected rent, whether there has been an agreement on the matter of relief between the landlord and tenant, and whether the tenant's business is viable or would be viable if relief of any kind was given. And it's interesting, isn't it, that last part of the assessment about the tenant's uh, business, whether it's viable, etc. I mean, how do we see that working, Hope? It is interesting. In fact, um, the last limb of the test is actually a little odd. So given the clear indications in the code of practice, you would assume that if the tenant's business is viable, then they should, in theory, be paying the rent anyway. But um, it should be noticed that the viability of the tenant's business is assessed in stages two and three. Firstly, to determine whether the matter is suitable for arbitration, and if so, in considering when making an award, how much the tenant will be offered to pay or afforded to pay and how quickly. The tenant should be conscious that viability is not defined but um, in accordance with the code of practice, the arbitrator will need to consider whether putting aside the ring fence debt, the business has or will in the foreseeable future have the means and ability to meet the obligations and will be able to continue trading. So it's quite a balance, a balancing act. 
Yes, I can see that. And then the process, of course, gets to stage three, if it passes stage two, which is when the arbitrator assesses the matter of relief, uh, which is no doubt what most tenants are going to be interested in. Um, do we have any insight as to how that exercise is going to be approached? So, yes. Yeah, so provided that the arbitrator determines that the reference meets the criteria, um, we then get to stage three, which will involve the arbitrator deciding whether the tenant should be given any relief and if so, what relief? Um, and this is really where it comes to the importance of the formal proposals that are made at stage one. So the arbitrator will need to apply certain criteria and principles to considering the proposals um, and considering what award to make. Now those principles are that the award should be aimed at preserving or restoring and preserving the viability of the tenant's business. So far as that is consistent with preserving the landlord's solvency. Um, and the tenant should, so far as consistent with the first limb of the test, be required to meet its obligations to pay the protected rent debt in full and without delay. So when we're looking at the proposals that are made at stage one, the arbitrator will look to see which of the proposals made, either um, the, the person who first made the reference or the person who responded, which of those proposals is more closely aligned with the principles that the arbitrator is required to determine. Um, and then the award can be made either in whole or in part or as close as possible to one of the formal proposals that have been given to the arbitrator. And it's worth noting, isn't it, that there are circumstances where parties may be caught by the provisions of the bill, even where there's no expectation for it to actually apply. Um, perhaps we can give a few examples of that for our listeners. So the bill will apply where the landlord has drawn down on a rent deposit and applied that towards any protected rent debt. And if there is a request to top up um, that rent deposit, then that can be referred to the arbitration scheme. So in anticipation of this bill becoming law, um, what do we think uh, landlords or tenants should be looking to do, Nat? So I think the starting point um, whether you're a landlord or a tenant, um, is that if there is any prospect of reaching a settlement, then all efforts should be made to do so. Uh, I mean, I think evidently a settlement which the parties to the dispute are able to reach themselves is far likely to be in the better interest of the parties than having a third party arbitrator determine whether a particular form of relief ought to be imposed in any particular case. Um, it should also be noted that an award made by the arbitrator is both final and binding. Um, the awards are able to be published and so the parties may not be able to agree the same sort of level of confidentiality that they would otherwise be able to agree if they reached agreement between themselves. Um, the other point is that although the process follows three clear stages, there's no visibility over how long the process may take once the reference has been made. There's a lot of information required to be gathered right at the start so that the formal proposals can be made. Um, and, you know, we don't really know what will happen if, for example, um, the arbitrator doesn't feel that there is enough supporting information and documentation. What, what submissions can be made by the parties in relation to further information or documentation required? The only real indication we have as to timing is how quickly that the awards need to be made by the arbitrator. So the timings of the award will depend on whether there is an oral hearing to consider the issue of relief. And if there is, the award needs to be made within 14 days of the hearing. But if not, then the award needs to be made as soon as possible after final proposals are received. Um, it also shouldn't be underestimated that the likely burden, including in terms of costs and time on both parties, if the matter is referred to arbitration. So first, the process of formulating the formal proposals right at the outset 
if you're either the applicant um, making the notification or the respondent responding with your own proposal. The formal proposals will form the basis of any award which is made um, and they will determine any possible relief to be granted. So these will need to be really carefully drafted and carefully thought out. The proposals need to be accompanied with supporting evidence and that also will need to be carefully considered and collated, um, especially considering the fact that currently there's no prescribed form for these proposals. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? I think that's going to shock quite a few people when they realise that these arbitration awards, which we're used to being, you know, one of the benefits of arbitration usually is it's all confidential to the parties. And so you keep it out of the courts, you keep it away from everybody knowing what the outcome is. Um, uh, and it is in, I think it's going to be very interesting when people realise that this is this is going to be, you know, these awards are going to be publicly available. Um, and as you say, also this idea that really the arbitrator is picking between the two positions, um, not necessarily fudging it down the middle, which dare I say it, sometimes we are used to. Um, so it will be very interesting to see how these play out in practice. Um, and so let's just think about it individually for a second. So perhaps firstly, from the point of view of the landlord hope, um, what are landlords, you know, what's on their checklist of what they need to be thinking about and actioning? So firstly, the landlord will want to check carefully whether any payments which have been received from the tenant have been applied towards any protected rent debt, particularly in priority to any other sums. Um, they'll want to consider whether proceedings have been issued. They may want to stay those proceedings and for parts of the claim, including the protected rent debt sum, to be referred to arbitration. The landlord will also need to consider that the arbitrator at stage three will consider the landlord's solvency. So they'll want to be prepared to provide and disclose information, including their own solvency, and that will encompass showing their assets and liabilities and any other information um, that the guidance refers to. Particularly, I know the guidance has a non-exhaustive list um, which sets out information for both the landlord and the tenant. So they'll want to refer to that. But it shouldn't be overlooked that this is potentially also going to be a burden for the landlord it's not just the onus isn't just on the tenant it's also on the landlord for them to show their financial information yes and I have to say I mean it's, it's one of the reasons we spoke about this bill um some while back on one of our podcasts and I, I did express some reservations then as to whether we really will see much use of this system because as you say, there's a lot of preparation involved um, and time. Uh, and I do wonder if you know, parties would certainly be better putting like, their efforts into trying to reach agreement, let's put it that way. Um, but let's see, who knows. Uh, and what about from a tenant's point of view? Um, what do they think, what do they need to be thinking about and actioning? Well, as mentioned earlier, if the landlord has used the tenant's rent deposit towards any of the protected rent debt, then the landlord can refer to arbitration for the top up and the arbitrator will then be able to assess whether this should be paid for by the tenant. So the tenant may want to consider that in the first instance. Um, if the matter is to be referred to arbitration, the tenant will need to provide significant information and documentation to support their eligibility assessment. And this will include details of their assets and liabilities, other tenant, other tenancies that the tenant may be a party to, the rental payments made, the impact on the pandemic generally for the business, and as much financial information and support as possible. So bank account information, savings, current accounts, financial statements for each financial year, any evidence of government grant, government grants that have been taken during the pandemic or employees that were placed on furlough. Um, it's all encompassing really. 
And for larger tenants, a lot of this information might be readily available. Although there is, you know, the, the separate question that will they want to disclose this information? And although there are confidentiality provisions in the bill, the idea is that the information will be made public with an element of redaction for the sensitive information. But then for smaller tenants, the provision of this information may prove to be time consuming and costly. So time really is key in this whole process. Yes, that's definitely true. And I do think that um, a lot of tenants will be very reluctant to disclose this level of information. And as, as you say, uh, just to spend time on it as well it is going to be time consuming uh, and as much as there's reassurance about redactions and what have you um you know having on occasion been given copies of orders without the redactions in uh, I, i'm always a little wary of um alleged confidential reactions redactions even uh, so let's see let's see um well thank you very much both for that very interesting overview of the bill um there's obviously a lot of detail here and we'll have to see how it works out actually in practice um, we'll probably do a further podcast once we get a flavor of what's happening on the ground in the meantime i'm sure that's been very helpful for our listeners and we look forward to speaking to you all again soon this is a charles russell speechlies podcast 